Crossings was recorded on the unceded sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. EWF pays our respects to Wurundjeri elders past and present and to the elders of all lands that this podcast reaches. You're listening to Crossings, the EWF in Conversation podcast. My name is Jess and I'm the program coordinator of the Emerging Writers Festival. Today I'm thrilled to share a conversation between Vivian Nguyen and Jamie Tram. Vivian is an acclaimed playwright and actor. Her work has previously been commissioned by the Malthouse Theatre and Footscray Community Arts Centre. Her most recent work was the Astonishing Comet Boombox that featured at the 2023 Melbourne Fringe Festival. Jamie Tram is a culture writer and screenwriter. They are the small screens editor at The Big Issue and their work can be found in Spectrum at the Age, Senses of Cinema, Filming and Elsewhere. In 2022, they co-wrote the animated short Graveyard Shift, which premiered at Melbourne Queer Film Festival opening night. Vivian and Jamie met for the first time for this conversation. They spoke about pop culture and digital media, the various moods that influence and shape their writing, and being Asian Australian writers in the local screen and theatre industry. This is a thought-provoking, humorous and honest conversation that I took a lot away from, and I hope you do too. They start by speaking about what they're stylistically drawn to in their writing. You know, who I'm with, yeah, it really depends. Yeah. I think, like, I... Subtlety bores me, but I think it... It's, like, if it's intentional, then it's interesting. But I think that I'm always... I'm always drawn to... I don't think extreme things, but intense things, like passion. Mm. Mm. See, when I think of intensity, or at least when I practice or channel intensity, it's never through the absurd. For some reason, I just can't do it. I don't have a, a mind that's wired towards making things mm. absurd. But I lean into horror, which often is absurd. It's so absurd. I, I love... I love body horror a lot, actually. Really? Yeah, no, it's oh, one of my favourite things. And I think it's such a great way to express um, a lot of angst and a lot of things that are just bubbling up inside of you. Can I tell you something? I, I have never watched a horror film. You're joking. No. <laughs> I, the last horror film I watched was in primary school. No, actually, I'm just, that was that's a lie. That's a lie. I will tell the truth. The um the last thing, the last horror thing I've watched was my friends a couple of years ago forced me to watch um it, mm. the that the the recent one, and I couldn't watch the first act. I watched the the kid in the yellow jacket talk to um talk to the clown about the lost boat and I just yelled at the TV. I'm like, you are such a dumb kid. <laughs> You're so dumb. You are one idiot. Like, because I was just too scared. And then I just like closed my eyes and was on my phone throughout the whole film. But I've never watched something, anything scary. Even scary movie, the satire <laughs> scares me. Even in primary school, we watched a animated 2D, very documentary-esque uh, uh, video about Medusa and I got scared. Oh, I get that. I, know, I was a huge scaredy cat in primary school. That's the thing. Like one of my biggest sources of, I don't want to say trauma, that's obviously a lot, but um, one of the things that it's really It's not a lot to me, David. <laughs> it's not a lot to me. 
Just as a child, I think in prep or grade one, mm. in Japanese class, we saw Big Bird Goes to Japan, which is a really lovely um, like TV special. But then there's this point where they get like trapped in a museum at night, and that freaks me out to no end. Um, that was terrifying. And we also saw Spirited Away, which I think as a oh, six-year-old is yeah. a lot. Like, yeah. No, it's been I understand. Yeah. So why do you... F- feel like you enjoy horror now? Like what made you kind of okay with that space? I think that I was so fascinated by these things that scared me. And even as a teenager, I was so scared by everything. I was scared of the dark at like 14 years old. And I decided to sort of expose myself more and more to it. Mm. And that's when I discovered that horror could be so much fun. That was when I got into like James One and, you know, Insidious. That was a game changer for me because that made me realize, oh, all the stuff that I was scared of is goofy as hell. It is so fun. I can see I it's like clowns, right? Everyone mm. I think when you are a filmmaker, you kind of understand the mechanisms of making something. So everyone you just watch everyone just becomes something and perform or act or you write the script and it's just ideas on the page. But I think as a viewer, if you don't understand that, it is quite terrifying because mm. you, it is such a creative space horror. But it's also, I think it plays on impossibilities, making it realised and the fact that it can be realised is a, is a scary concept, especially in that kind of, in, in the genre of horror. I still can't bring, my, I think I have an anxiety attack or or it's more, I think it's not, watching it is okay, it's the aftermath of mm. it, of horror that scares me. It's like, what do you do afterwards? How do you cope with the ideas that you just saw? How do I cope with not falling asleep? <laughs> How do I cope with seeing images pop up in my brain out of out of nowhere? And next thing you know, I'm like, oh, Oh gosh, I just saw that. I'm my whole body has adrenaline coursing through me. What do I do? Like that's a, I think that's a part of horror that I struggle with, but that's why I love but I love drama. Mm. I'm like drama, give me all the drama, give me give me crazy characters, give me wildness, give me really horrible problems that people have to deal with every day and I can I can handle that space. Yeah, it's interesting, I think. Well, I mean, nowadays, I feel like there's such a crossover between drama and horror. Yeah. I mean, the work of Ariasta, like, have you seen, like, say, Midsummer? As I said, I cannot watch horror, but I watched a couple of scenes and uh, it was it was quite terrifying. But it, it plays, did, was it not the, a kind of film that plays on, um, correct me if I'm wrong, like periods or like... But most of it, I would say, is just a very intense drama. I think you would like most of it. Um, which is why I'm saying I think you should you should watch it. The reason why it's terrifying to me is because mm. it's about being in a terrible relationship and then having all of those anxieties really feasted upon in this sort of cult festival thing. I haven't seen it in years, but yeah, you, you might like that, I guess. But do you think when you write stories, you talk, you mentioned relationships. Some people I know write for premise sake, right? Like, is there a focus point when you write a story? Because for me, I think character, humans, relationships, such an integral part of my writing that if I don't understand the dynamic of what's happening, I can't really pursue the idea, Mm. Um, especially with characters. And I think human beings are very, 
I love contradictions and that's why the journey is such an interesting vessel in a character. But for you, when you actually write, what actually spurs you to the idea and what is your focus point? What's the anchor in your story? I would say that I come through my stories through the premise. I would say that mm-hmm. I just have an idea and then through that idea, I f- then I figure out, well, what would be the best characters to kind of explore this idea through. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, currently what I'm writing, I think I really came up with the idea first because I loved in the abstract this idea of just teens hanging out over a bunch of parties. And then I went, well, what kind of like teenage characters do I want to write about? And then from there, I sort of dove into my own adolescence, the people I surrounded myself with, the people I surround myself with now as well. And from all of those different influences, that's how I started creating these characters. And I mean, yeah, when it comes to those characters, then I start drawing a lot upon real life and yeah, what interests me and but also fundamentally what makes them, you know, really support that premise. But in your writing, when I read your excerpt, Overachievers, there's this very adolescent lens, it's so charming, but then it goes through these weird quirks of funny sexual talk (laughs) that teenagers do in their private conversations, but it's so effortless, I think, in the writing of the relationship between the, the female and the male character and also their own privacy, like the scenes where one of the, the main characters in the bathroom and there's Grinder, and there's also that, that text message from his friend trying to battle that and, and, and also like ma- masturbate. I don't know. It was really, I found that really interesting. I, I laughed so loud. I was in the cafe and I just didn't see that coming because, and also because I'm assuming they're both Asian. Yeah. Yeah, and I think something I really loved about it was that I think as people's perceptions of what an Asian person is, is this meek, shy, both both genders or non-binary, just Asians, the identity is still very keep your head down, work, keep quiet and keep going. But I think with this, it shines a light on a very beautiful aspect of people and, and, and myself included that we're actually allowed to express our sexuality in such a really loud and, and quirky and charismatic way. It was really charming. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Because I'm the youngest of three children, so I got to have a bit more freedom as yeah. a teenager growing up. And the groups that I was around, it was cool to talk a bit more frankly about sex and kind of make jokes and be a bit more outrageous. So that's kind of what I did. And mm. I'm not saying necessarily that... Um, that was who I was. But I think that's what that's how a lot of teenagers talk. And I think that is exactly how a lot of Asian teenagers talk as well. I know for a fact that most of the Asian teenagers I was around constantly talked about sex. Mm, I'm the oldest and I grew up with m- men, in, even in school, who were so quiet about it, who really kept silent. And it was a more of a private conversation to themselves or like through the internet, the conversation and dialogue about sexuality, especially if they're attracted to someone else or through the lens of this is a private thing, I don't share it. So it was so liberating. Like your work was very liberating to me in a sense that it gave me a possibility of, oh, people do speak like that. I can only reflect through my show because I did a show about dating and about my own relationship to sexuality and I remember this distinct experience and I've spoken at length to people about this and I, I'm trying to interrogate it. When I was 
sexually liberated and I'm speaking about my sexuality, there's still a lens that I'm aware of about like, and as an Asian woman, but exotification. Mm. And I, that's that awareness that I still have about that. So when I did the show, a lot of Asians who watched it were really quiet. And it was very fascinating. They were so scared to express it. But anyone who didn't identify to that kind of, I guess, identity experience were like, yeah, woo! It's like there's this liber- permission to be liberated. But that kind of distinction was interesting to me. So reading your work was quite refreshing. Thank you. Well, I want to hear a bit more about your work now. I mean, this play you did that was about yourself and your own sexuality, that sounds terrifying. See, I have the distance of fiction and saying these are made-up characters, but Mm. your show is, it's all you. Yeah. So when you say that some people were quiet, what do you think that was in response to? I think we're in a very interesting time in in storytelling and in that world of both cinema and in maybe possibly theatre that we're writing more interesting female characters. But I think that we're still far off of imagining anyone who's a main character, anything other than like, you know, a white person. So for me to be put myself in the position of being the voice of my own experience, explaining about my sexuality, it, I think it gave people insight into something that is not spoken about a lot at length. Mm-hmm. And I think for me trying to kind of grapple with those kind of layers and where we are. And if you're a creator, you create, right? You create the things that you want to speak about. But if it's not in the zeitgeist, then it's a foreign idea still that people haven't caught up yet, Mm. even though you're the one that's having the agency to tell that story. But a lot of my work is more from my own agency. So I don't look around and say, I'm going to write this is a really, everyone's writing about this, I'm going to write about that. It's like, what do I actually want to say? And that propels me to write it, but sometimes it's not in the discourse. Mm. Yeah. Do you find yourself being influenced by anything in particular? Or do you really just go out, as you say, just on a limb and just write exactly what what it is that you're interested in? I actually haven't um, watched any Netflix or like no TV, nothing the last probably eight months. You must be saving a fortune on subscription costs. Yes, I am. I am. YouTube is my friend. (laughs) Um, And like not, I'm not even on social media as much. It's only one hour a day. So it's been interesting to not know what's in the zeitgeist and not be influenced by it. So when someone tells me, oh, this happened, I'm like, oh, what? I don't know. So it's been interesting to see how it affected my creativity. Mm. I remember doing one play where I had to kind of do research and it was a political play. And because I was writing about if hypothetically someone like Penny Wong was to become prime minister, what would that journey look like? And so I remember researching and kind of being in the zeitgeist of what was happening politically in that time. I was 24-7 on Twitter. (laughs) I was watching the House of Reps. I was watching speakers talk and politicians debate, read every headline on The Guardian, The Age, the Saturday paper, just everything. And I remember that influencing my work, but not in a way that I don't think propelled me to be creative, creatively risky. It was just regurgitation. But now I'm writing other work, but I'm not in that space. The choices that I'm making are from my own, mm. what, what I think is best for it. And it's not being influenced by what I think people would like. And that's fascinating to me because I find your dialogue to be so, so not just authentic because that in itself is a virtue, but I think it's so compelling to read and it feels, 
especially when you performed it live, it was wildly entertaining. How did you come to this other play that you've been writing or you've finished a draft of it, right? Mm. And it's about, correct me if I'm wrong, this um, ex-like criminal who comes out of jail. He's Vietnamese and I assume gets up to shenanigans throughout like that night, right? Yeah, so it's a drug trafficker who comes out of jail and he has called his friends together to reunite. They all think it's a celebration of his release, but it all kind of uncovers in one night. And himself and three of his friends, they've been best friends since boyhood days in high school, but they were involved in drug trades and being young and being a teenager and being young adult and through those really strong transitions of life. But in this night, all these secrets and betrayals are uncovered of what they've done to each other and especially to the main character. And it unveils a deeper question of what is brotherhood? What does it mean to be a man? And it involves cars, which is hot. That's <laughs> really hot stuff. Um, really great cars. And it involves hip-hop, cocaine, Hennessy, very much hip-hop culture, which I grew up in. And I think a lot of people are driven by that because we grew up in the working class lens. And so something about the struggle, something about that kind of music and culture gave permission for these characters to alive and embolden themselves in a world that never sees them as anybody, you know. And I think that's an interesting thing that I wanted to write about in Cocaine Bust, yeah. What really struck me is how well you wrote those men. And is that something that you did any research for or was that just off your own experiences and your immersion in this world? It's a mixture of both. Um, I had to do research because there was a choice of me having to do research, not because I didn't know these characters. I know them because I grew up around them and I grew up around that culture. But I just didn't want to write a caricature mm. and especially because everyone's experiences is different. And I feel like when you care about a story a lot, you want to invest in your character and you want to invest in the story. And that becomes out of, born out of passion because you care about them. And so I did my research. I contacted um, a friend of mine who used to be in that world. We are like no longer speaking and we connected to each other. And he's built like a whole career in the hospitality industry. He's like a head chef. Wow. But he used to be in this world. And it was so fascinating, the impact of his previous life and what he saw. That made me care a lot more, you know, like the impact of drugs in the community. And that is still, is still I'm getting real teary, but it's still ongoing. And so mm. when I go to the story, it's like, I'm not writing it just for me. I'm writing it for a community. I think that research helps with that. I've done research where I've done it just to know the world, but this research was more from a place of, I care about these people. And so I want to write the best thing I can for them. And just understanding addiction and alcoholism and drug abuse and all that, the dialogue only shows how much you've invested in, in getting to know them in a deeper mm. level. Yeah. And so did you come to this project through those characters first? Uh, I came from, uh, yeah, from the characters first. But a lot of my stories come from character mm. and then I build the story around the character. I struggle with premise, but I think the premise is built from like getting to know them and doing a lot of character work, mm. which is me asking these characters hot seat questions like, if you were to go to Woolworths, what would you buy? What would be in your cart? Or... If your house was burning down, 
what would you grab? Like a lot of those really weird ca- character questions I would ask or what was your worst nightmare? What was your first kiss? And, and, and then writing scenes of their lives, just like investing, investing, investing. That has nothing to do with the story. No, that's really wonderful. I mean, I feel like I'm almost the opposite, which feels terrible to say, but... I don't think it's terrible. I think it's just a nice entry point and it's a really interesting entry point. Because to me, I my characters are always in flux. I feel yeah. like for you, again, you throw all these questions at them. It sounds like even if you, maybe you don't have a document of everything about them, but it seems like you've written all these different things about them and you fleshed them out before you even get into the story, right? Whereas to me, I have sort of an outline and several key traits and, you know, the whole deal, like that doesn't change, like what they want um, and like some certain character traits, that doesn't change. But questions like, you know, what they would buy from a store, how they react to certain situations, I feel like I discovered that by writing the story itself and I don't veer too far outside of that. And maybe I should veer outside of that a little bit more to challenge them in different ways before I put them back into the story, maybe. But I like, but I struggle with, plot, like structure, even though I have a structure, I'm such an explorative writer where I would love tips from yourself to kind of have key points. I'm learning it through this project, like a couple of projects I'm doing where, but it's also exciting to know that that's an area you want to improve in as well. Like Mm. I feel excited by plot and premise because I'm like, this is a skill that I'm still developing I know character, I know this world really, really well, but this is something that I know would help me and make me better in a sense. Mm. And I, I, I would say that it's such a great opportunity to know as a writer that you have this whole career to explore all these different ways of accessing story. And I, I feel that the more I learn, the more excited I get about my, about my writing because I was like, what else am I going to do now with all these like skills I've learned? Mm. What I really loved about your writing when I read it was that it was so anchored. I knew what was going on, but it had these like idiosyncrasies about people and that was really explorative. It made me allow to explore these characters. It was really clear, like clear and crisp. Thank you. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is that the script that I'm writing, Overachievers, that is maybe the least structured of um, any of my scripts. Oh, really? Yeah, because... I mean, I'm only a couple of years outside of film school. So I spent, you know, three years in an undergrad writing scripts that had to kind of conform yeah. to, you know, like, a very specific plot structure. And this one mm. is still, you know, broadly follows those outlines. And I think for me, I still think it's useful to kind of think about characters in that traditional sort of screenwriter one-on-one way of, like, needs, wants, fatal flaws, stuff like that. I think having an idea of those things is still useful to me. But... It really is just kids hanging out. And yeah. wow, like, again, there's a shape to it. What I, I think what I sent you, which is almost the first party um, out of five parties, just people catching up, chatting, hanging out. And those are some of the movies that I love the most. I mean, the Before Trilogy, like anything that Richard mm. later does, I am obsessed with. Um, Boyhood was so... I actually haven't seen Boyhood. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it is. I loved... I loved it. I also love School of Rock. Yes, classic. Classic. It is one of those comfort comfort movies I watch every year. I will save one view per year for School of Rock. His work is also clear premise, hmm. but it is just hanging out or this like this space to explore 
in this structure that we all know so well. It's like a very slice of life. Yeah. But it's interesting. I want to ask you, because you brought up, you studied, you went to undergrad. I didn't study writing. But did you feel that there was an influence? How did it actually affect your work? To be honest, I'm not even quite sure. I think that what I found useful about going to the VCA, because that, that's yeah. where I studied, um, was having that understanding of structure and having that drilled into me. As much as that's not necessarily what I always want to be doing, I think that at least, you know, when it comes to commercial writing, like those are really important. And I think even, well, that's the thing, virtually every film, I think, even ones that like break the mold, I think still have some kind of shape. Mm. And to me, my understanding of the importance of structure was not that you always have to follow your classical three act structure every single time, but that if you're writing like any kind of story, it has to have characters going on some kind of journey, right? They have to learn something, something has to happen to them, there needs to be some kind of drama like 90% of the time. Mm-hmm. And should have some idea of how to make that journey compelling and that it can't just be one note. I mean, some people, for some films, it can be one note and that's fine. But most of the time, even if you're not strictly following like your classical narrative structure, you still need to have ebbs and flows within the narrative. Otherwise, it gets boring. That's mm. at least my takeaway. And I'm sure people would completely disagree with that. But it made me understand why people came to the 3X structure and how we can well, write in a way that's compelling while moving away from that. Yeah. I think you have to understand. Like a story is like a vessel. Mm. I think like I always think a story is a vase or somewhat a container. And in, in that container, there's this like little electron and it moves and there's energy that creates all this tension and then it bursts. Something has to change in order for a story to be compelling. Mm. But I think that for me, I came into storytelling as an actor. So a lot of what I think as a writer is very instinctual. Because I, I've, as an actor, you know the beats. You kind of understand when things shift, when things change. It's very tactile of understanding story. So when I write, it is almost trying to find structure. But when you find it, you're like, great, I've explored that, I've discovered that, what else? And that's kind of intuition writing that I, I have. But I think whenever I do sit down and I try to figure it out, I get into my head, it becomes really cerebral. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could benefit from going to to study, but at the same time, I'm scared that my creativity will be taken away from me. Here's the thing. Those things only are effective if you actually have something to say and or you have some sort of voice or you've got all these riches coming from somewhere else and you already have that. I think that is the hard part, right? Having mm. perspective, having um, the ability, like having these ideas and having this attention to character and detail that you have. You can learn structure, but you can't learn how to be like an interesting creative writer. Mm. My interesting question to you, I think, is what do you want in your career? Like what do you aspire? What actually drives you to write? What drives you to create continuously? Mm. I want to spend my life doing something that's creative. Yeah. And maybe it doesn't have to be in screen, but I want to keep writing. I and the reason why I want to keep writing is because I'm constantly watching or reading stuff and or even just hanging out with friends. That always sparks ideas because my friends are the loveliest, most interesting people that I've met and the things that they talk about, the things that preoccupy them, like that fascinates me and that you know, makes me want to like, you know, create something myself. And so I'm always, you know, responding to like external stimuli and 
Yeah, right. I'm, I'm like that too. I can't write it unless I'm stimulated by external things. Like that generates me. I just did this test. This is really weird and off tangent. But oh, um, so uh, there's this thing called, I'm sure it's astrology, but turned into some weird, again, new age religion thing that's happening. But it's called human design. And so someone, I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about human design. And I was like, you know, I'm always interested in trying to get to know myself. I'm like, look, grain of salt, I'm just going to take this test. And I took the test and it says I'm a generator. And I read more about it and it really described me in a sense of I can't write something or I can't feel creative if I'm not in a space that propels me to be creative. Mm. Do you know, there's some people who could just sit down and they're like, I'm going to be creative. I'm like, no, I can't. I kind of need like, I don't know, pressure, an anxiety attack. No, I don't need that. <laughs> or just some sort of um, chaos in a sense. If that be creative friends who are talking about these wonderful ideas or being in a world, I, I think also it's an interesting thing about our day and age. It's that we are in a really difficult time, but something about that breeds creativity because you need to say something. Yeah, absolutely. And... I guess one of the big things that I have omitted from that sort of pool of influences yeah. is um, social media, Twitter. Like, I would be totally dishonest if I said that my writing wasn't influenced by Twitter because the way people interact in there is so fascinating. There are so many weirdos. And there are so, so many weirdos. And it's such it's an amazing stuff. <laughs> it's, it's just enough for me. I, <laughs> I can't get it. In fact, no, it's not enough. I can't get enough of it. And... It's such a fascinating insight into how people really are when you can be completely anonymous and you can just say whatever you want to other people and have zero self-awareness as well. God, it's so fascinating to see how people act on Twitter. But also people are very funny and that also inspires me when I see funny little tweets. I didn't mean to spend this much time talking about Twitter. I'm so sorry. But I no, it's okay. I, I, love, I, re, I find this, this, these conversations about writing, especially about the internet and how it influences writing, is so interesting to me. Because I literally heard the other day, I was walking and behind me was a group of girls and they were talking about whatever, wasn't listening to that. But there was one line and I laughed so loud. They were like, at the end of the day, we're all just reflections and projections. And I said, that is the weirdest thing I've ever heard, ever. You know, I'm like, who? But then I realized we're hanging around a generation who grew up with the internet. Mm. So you, of course I'm going to expect that. So I would expect someone to say things like what they say on Twitter. You know, I really struggled a lot with this because I'm writing about teenagers, but I'm not writing about the time they spend online, which is like, you know, 30, 40% of their lives. And I don't know. It could be more these days. It's probably more. Yeah. Um, I, I never check my screen time. Um, Are you too scared? Yeah. People can see my tweets. They can see how online I am. Um, I would say maybe two hours a day minimum. That is nothing. I'm, what, no, two hours, it depends, right? Because you can have a, I spend, I'm happy to say mine. I spend four hours, four hours a day on my phone, but majority of it is emails, podcasts, my fitness apps, Google Maps. That's it. But like, and you see Instagram because I'm very accountable. I see Instagram fifteen minutes. I'm like, brilliant. See, when I said two hours minimum, that was only on Twitter. <laughs> I have a question about that from my understanding with life. Boredom is very important in creativity. Mm, mm. 
having the space to be bored kind of bruise something in in the mental space. So do you feel that Twitter kind of fills a void for you or...? Yeah, I think it does in a way block my creativity because I think for me, and I think, you know, both of us were talking about how we both need external stimuli to be creative. And I think it can't all come from the one place. Mm. It can't all come from Twitter. It can't all come from the movies. Otherwise, you're just writing movies about Twitter or writing movies about movies. And we have so many of them and they all suck. I've noticed that too. There's a lot of creators creating the same thing. And, and, and it, it's it, it to me it's like wow we, we're all very creative but it all seems to be this big group mind where we're all writing about the same thing and it's interesting when I think in history people create because of like the times right mm. but it seems that even though we're writing about the times because we're all consuming the same thing that we're writing about the same ideas the same topics we're seeing things from the same lens so are we actually being autonomous in our work? Or are we just loudspeakers about the same mm. ideas? How can we actually expand our ideas if that's the case, that circumstance? Especially structure, like Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse and everywhere, everything everywhere all at once. It has this lens of Inception-esque structure and form. You keep going in and then you go out, you subvert, you invert. But now everyone's doing that. Yeah. You know what? Even commercials are starting to do it too. I was, I was, I'm auditioning for a commercial where it's like, Oh, we're in a scene. Cut! It's a director and actor. We're, oh, oh gosh, we are. I'll subvert in something else. Like I'm like this. Is it's all the same? Yeah. Is it us trying to be clever, trying to outwit ourselves? I don't know. I think this is really a point about geek culture because yeah. I think to me, um, sort of this meta sensibility in mainstream filmmaking is sort of inextricably tied to geek culture and. Before that, we used to have like a, a bigger, like a more diverse slate of movies across all these genres. And now it's mm. like, when was the last time you saw a rom-com in the cinema? Um, True. Yeah. And now we're expected to watch, you know, the, the rom-coms we're expected to watch are like She-Hulk or Disney+. Plus. And it's like, I mean, that's a legal drama, but I don't have time to go into She-Hulk in this <laughs> podcast. But to me, like, ever since you know, that became this monolith and those, you know, movies were kind of a little bit self-aware and self-referential and they were like, you know, if you know, you know, and they pandered to fans who knew, you know, Mm. more about the material and I think that eventually has led to, you know, the multiverse is becoming a thing and even when you have a fresh take on it like, you know, everything everywhere did, um, I think it can be a little bit tiresome. Before that, we just had like a lot a wider range of movies that explored, you know, different topics. And we still had, you know, huge blockbusters. We've had huge blockbusters since the 70s, but I think Meta really has taken over because that has become such a fixture of, you know, geek culture. And capitalise as well. I think people love figuring things out. Mm. It's like, oh, I got it. Like that feeling, it's, it's quite like a dopamine hit, isn't it? It's like, yeah. oh, I understand it. I get it. I'm on the, the ride with the rider and then it subverts in a, in a way. And it's like, oh, that was so, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. But I guess it's that shock factor maybe mm. that people I can't, kind of want in a, in a storytelling experience. So everyone's coming to writing stories, trying to be clever mm. and try to, instead of actually becoming a version of yourself that you think you should be rather than just coming from your voice and trusting that that's enough mm. and then building from that. It's, yeah, I think it's interesting when I speak to a wide range of creators because now it's like the effort of trying to figure out a premise that is enough mm. to, to compel an audience. 
do you worry about your audiences outsmarting you? Because I feel like that is the core fear when it comes to trying to, you know, be really clever. I think there's such a fear of audiences finding you stale or boring or like cliche or... I I don't have that worry because I think I trust my voice enough to Mm. be like compelling. I think my perspective and how I see the world, I think being an actor first, then doing that as ingrained to me, I'm like, oh, I know as a performer... I've done all these weird shows that are also different, but they are still compelling in in a sense. And I think that I have this self, I have this belief, and I've been I've been told this by a lot of dramaturgs I've worked with. The more unique your story is, the more specific it is, the more unique and the more universal it becomes. Mm. My question to you is: as a screenwriter, do you study a lot of past films and do you feel that that's influenced your work? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think this comes back once more to external stimuli. And I, for anything in my life, not just creative practice, I need to see how someone else has done something before I do it. Because I get overwhelmed by like being faced with infinite possibility. Like that to me is soul crushing. And so if I can see this is how... Speaking my language. (laughs) I'm so glad you understand. And this isn't just to copy them because that that's boring, right? Yeah. But I think it's interesting to see, okay, so this is how someone has done it. This is another way someone has done it. And then you sort of figure out how you want to do it. I am not doing anything that is so wildly original or, you know, like goes against form and convention. I am very much moving certain genres, but I like to think that I'm still trying to bring something new to the table. But all of that is on a foundation of mm. things that have come before and things that I love. So... Yeah, I would absolutely draw upon um, and rewatch and kind of study films and scripts that I think are relevant to my story, especially when it comes to structure, which, again, is not like my main priority. But then I was struggling with what is Amy's journey in Overachievers. Mm. And I looked at The Edge of Seventeen, which is such a wonderful movie. Yeah, it's a good movie. Right? It's a really good movie, yeah. And you have a really compelling character. And I, at the time, had like a character that I found compelling. How did they take that character on a journey. And then I looked at what, you know, Kelly Freeman Craig did with that. And then I was like, okay, right. So as much as this is someone who is very insular and, um, you know, very stubborn, I was like, okay, right. We had to keep pushing that character out of her comfort zones and she had to react to those changes. And I was like, right. So as much as what I'm doing is still very different to that movie, it gave me sort of an ideas of, you know, what to do with this character. So it wasn't just, you know, conversations for like, you know, 100 minutes. It was actually like conversations where this person is still kind of learning and changing and, you know, there's still some drama in there. So, Mm. yeah, that's super, super important to me. Yeah, I I really agree with that sentiment. I think for me as a playwright, I, and I think fortunately because I was an actor, I threw my head into the clouds and like learnt Shakespeare and like Chekhov, Strindberg, really old dead men um, and then you go to your like Arthur Millers and your Tennessee Williams and you go to your contemporaries like, you know, Sarah Kane and a lot of my work is quite international, which is interesting, but it is when you know that someone's done it, it's like recontemporizing mm, something. Mm. You're not taking, a, it, it, I don't know if it's permission, but it's more of, oh, that's the structure they've used. How can I use the same vessel but add my characters and my ideas into it? And interestingly, using the same structure 
it changes the structure. Even mm. though it's like mm. it's a, you take a circle and you put your ideas and now it's like a morphed egg or something because you've put your own ideas and your own characters and the structure still remains the same, but it bends and morphs in so many... It's quite fluid yeah. in that. And I feel that just knowing the medium that you're speaking about and and really understanding it and having external stimuli gives you permission to kind of go a bit wild. Mm, mm. I actually wanted to circle back on a point you mentioned before because your work is extremely diverse and you've made it a point to be very, you know, like mm. to constantly be pushing it into different directions. But I've also noticed that, you know, you still like predominantly write about like Asian characters, right? And I wanted to know, is there anything that is recurring throughout your entire body of work? I think it's definitely influenced by the way that I see the world. I think a lot of my work, even though the, the themes and the premise, is I'm trying to push the fold. I think one, being an actor and not... You know, it's funny because every time I'm given a script before I became a writer... It, I found it really challenging finding myself in the shoes of the story, like as the character. I had to go through this big process of every time I would read a script, it would always be a white person. And isn't that interesting? Because I, when mm. I read a script, I'm like, how can I embody a character if I can't even see myself in it? And I think that the reason why I write a, predominantly a lot of Asian characters is that I want other people to have the experience and I have the experience of writing something and performing it, that really visceral experience that you know exactly what this, what this character entails, what possibly how they grew up, possibly how they see their parents, you know, all these relationships and how they see the world, you're given permission to have a vessel and experience that. Mm. I think as an actor, it's a really enriching experience. But I think the reason why I continue to write is to give people that, that kind of agency I think for me, again, being an actor, I'm always playing quirky characters. <laughs> like how you see me and this is how you see me. And it kind of, again, puts me in, a, in an experience of they only know parts of me. I'm not given opportunities to play an array of different experiences. I'm always playing geeky scientist, quirky best friend, you know. And when I, when I train, I actually was able to perform, I went overseas to perform all these different characters and I did such, I had such a great time. But in the industry itself, I'm not given that same mm. permission. Mm. So as a writer, I'm like, that's just not good enough, mm. you know? So I think I write in a, in a sense to challenge how people perceive certain things. Mm. Cocaine Bus is one of them where I'm like, I want to give four Asian men the opportunity to be complex, mm. to be more than just what they think they are. Yeah, sure, these are characters that are criminals, like they've done, but they're much more complex than that. But that's understand why. And that's why I write. And that's, I think, even with um, politics aside, being an Asian politician, you can say X, Y, Z about it, but understanding what it is to be a politician or understanding what it is to be a young woman, you know, who is different. What does that mean? a young woman who can be sexually liberated, an Asian woman who can be sexually liberated. I grew up Catholic, you know? So I'm like, challenge, challenge, challenge. And it gives people permission to see each other in so many different ways. Mm. I think that's, in, and I think maybe it's tied to power. I don't know. Maybe that's a through line of all my work. 
But I think growing up as a working class person, it gives me a, a sense of you have to see us in so many different ways. And I think expanding on perception is something I, I continuously do. Yeah. Yeah. I would ask the same question for you because I only read one excerpt, but I wouldn't want to know, is there, is there a through line in your body of work, you think? Not particularly, I would say. I think to me the current through line is that all of my characters are young people and I think they're all dealing with young people issues in various ways. Even if it's like a horror movie, I think it still engages with the things that you know, I'm interested in at the moment, yeah. which I hope isn't too insular, but I mean, that's what's in my brain. That's what's rattling around. So I write about that. I think it's so interesting how you talk about trying to really carve out space and grappling with the opportunities you get to, as an Asian actor, right? Um, mm. and an Asian female actor too, especially. And I grew up comfortably middle class. And I think it was so easy to just assimilate, right? Like, and, yeah. and it was interesting because at a certain point you know, at the VCA, I was realizing that all the characters that I wrote, like almost all of them were like white because that was my default. And from virtually all of my life, like the vast majority of my friends have been white. And it's so hard for me to get any distance from that. And which is why I guess with this story, I'm trying to make it about people who have assimilated and making it about that act itself. Yeah. I also want to be able to like challenge what it is that people expect of, you know, Asians, Asian Australians. And yeah. but also, you know, at the very start of this, you were talking about like the ways characters talk about sex. And like, I don't know about you. And again, maybe this is also a class thing as well, but like, my family never really talked that much about sex. Same, yeah. And I think it is like kind of more taboo in like Asian culture. This is not the most informed take, but this is just purely anecdotal. And then I was so shocked as a child to find out that like white parents were comparatively a lot more sort of... Yeah. Yes, very open about it. Very open. I would read Dolly magazine and be like, oh my God. You can talk about it. Yeah. And I think the internet really gave us permission mm. to be like, I'm not alone in my weird takes on sex. <laughs> Whoa. It's so and and then you end up talking about it with people. But I think growing up Asian, it's it's quite difficult because I don't think I ever had the birds and the bees conversation with my with my parents. It was always through virginity <laughs> and the Virgin Mary, which is very interesting. I was given a science book. Um, that was my exposure. It had, it had drawings. It was for children, but um, it was a science book. Um, I don't think I ever had the talk. Um, but meanwhile, I remember like when I was 13 or 14, I went to a friend's house. She was at the dinner table. She was like, oh yeah, by the way, like what's foreplay again? And I'm like, oh honey, it's when you blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Jesus Christ. Like, I would have loved to have that experience. Yeah, but it was wild to me. And yeah. I think, so that's why I was like, oh, you gotta, I've got to catch up. I've tried and be more quote unquote normal. Well, that's an interesting point because what is normal, you yeah. know, like the, is normality that we do have these conversations and maybe that stems from the conversation about how our, our identity really affects the way we see the world, right? Because I would identify in a similar way that I think I was very insular with my sexuality in, in a family context, even I think amongst my high school friends because I grew up with, with a lot of Asians. So we don't really talk about it, but it was always a private thing, mm. private thing on the internet, private thing when I went to the library and borrowed this like glossary book about sex or like Angus Angus snogging book that kind of yeah. Angus thongs and snogging. snogging yeah 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 but it was always white in my head mm. I'm like they get to have that sexual experience but I don't I will live through that storyline and wish that I would have that mm. 
but is that normal? Is it not? I don't know. But maybe that's just a, a part of the diasporic experience as an Asian person. No, for sure. And that's the thing. I didn't even get to the point of really questioning it or being super self-aware. And that's why yeah. when it came to starting to write scripts, the default was this sort of white character. It was To me, it was just like, what is the default person or like viewpoint or whatever? And that just is what it came to all the time. And I was like, right, I should probably try and work out of that because that's not... You know, that's not what I always want to see. That's not true. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you, that's an interesting point. It's that I know that for me, I don't write for for a white person. I I feel like I write for someone like myself to understand. Mm. It's funny. I think I've spoken to a lot of people at length when I write something. It's not for a lot of people to understand. Mm. I know that you're smart enough to try to understand it, and if you don't, that's not my problem. I feel that in my philosophy of writing especially for Asian characters, I remember someone asked me, maybe let's not do this because our audiences won't understand. And I said, I'm not writing for that audience though. And I actually find it much more interesting when I watch things that aren't of my experience, but of a different diaspora experience. I'm actually witnessing something that I don't know. And I find that much more of a compelling experience than trying to write for people to understand us. Mm, mm. I'm like, no, let's force you to understand us, not the other way around. Do you find that when you write, especially with your experience because you grew up around a lot of white people, did you find that when you write, it was from that perspective and, and does identity play a lot in your work? Well, I guess I like some stories where it's a little bit less character-based. You know, I just don't think about identity and yeah. in my head it just becomes white. I don't think about the audience. I'm not trying to make it for one particular audience. It's just what comes to my head is like a white character, like that's the starting point and then I'll fill in the gaps and all of that stuff. Mm. And it's because I have distance from like culture, it also felt really weird when I was trying to lean into writing about Asian people and writing about people from different countries when I was like, I mean, that's not really my place to write about. Like that's something that actually required research and to, mm -hmm. you know, um, explore. Whereas every time I sit down with a premise or a character, I really do try and make sure I don't fall into like the default mode of seeing them as like white or whatever. I'm trying to be making sure that actually race is really important and that background is there from the start. Otherwise, mm. like I'll keep writing people who are kind of just by default, you know, your average Australian person. And as much as I think with a lot of stories, you know, ethnicity and culture can be background detail and it shouldn't have to be like yeah. this really defining thing. If I'm being complacent about it, then it will just fade into the background. It won't be anything. So, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because being a writer and ha being a person of colour, there's like two ways you go about it. In, not two ways, but there is a, a way of when you're writing of your experience, you're writing a caricature of your experience. Mm. And I feel that um, a lot of the work sometimes that I've read, it's like highlighting that we're Asian. Like, we're Asian, we're Asian. This is this, you know, thing. It's sad because it's like forcing white people to understand our experience mm. in a sense. But this is what I try to do is that I'm just writing a story and there are, in this circumstance, Asian characters, but I'm not going to make it a point that they're Asian. Mm. And then having this other layer of do you default just to write, just write characters, but do we default to write stories through a white lens? Because I, I am what I am, that I have to, in my mind, grapple with all these like strings of experiences and who am I writing for or I have to be so aware of, is this true to what I'm trying to say? Is this for this audience? But I think that that is a common experience for writers of colour or from yeah. a marginalised background. I just find that interesting because you want permission to write anything that you want, but 
so it's just been put through so many lenses from an outsider in. Of course, when I create, I don't really think about it, but it's like if someone doesn't understand something, they will deem it as bad because they don't mm. understand it. It is like a bit of a cliche, but you were so right when you talk about how when you lean into the specificities of things and you're really honest about it and, you know, you write these characters who are really complex, they become, in a sense, universal. And, I mean, one of the excerpts you showed me, it was between a daughter and her mum and her mum was trying to convince, you know, this this girl to, like, go on, like, these weight loss, like, pills or whatnot, some kind of, like, medication, right? Mm. At my first thought was like, that is so my mum. She's super like health and weight conscious. And while it was very differently gendered to me and my brothers, like, you know, that definitely came across. Mm. But then I was like, wait a second, no, that's like every mum. The amount of friends I have whose mums were always like commenting on their appearances and weight and all that sort of stuff. And I think it's interesting how, you know, and I don't, you know, it's like a mum's just like wired that way. Is that, you know? Yeah, but they, but my, my like, I'm sure maybe your mum as well, I can't speak for her, but I, th- I know with my mum, she grew up in the generation of rag magazines. Yeah, there were so many rag ma- magazines mm. in the toilet. I was like, what's <laughs> with these? Angelie Jolie did what again? Like, it's like, it, it was weird because it's like without social media, that context is still there. Like yeah. the incredible magnification of female bodies and I think my mom grew up in that in that sense. But I think in that story, it's you know that 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 play is very much a, a reflection of my upbringing, which is my mom being so hyper fixated on 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 beauty. Mm. But it's funny because it's so relatable. But because in my context, it is so specific to a scenario that it brings up all these themes. At the same time, I almost feel like. Not a desire, but I almost feel drawn to self-exoticizing. I feel like yeah. it's so easy to kind of try and play up those elements of my identity. And I think parts of my identity haven't been, you know, presented in a lot of ways in media. And, you know, that should be explored. But part of me is also just like, well, if I do, you know, self-exoticize, is that going to make my work, is it going to be easier for my work to get published or made or whatever like that? So I'm always, mm. you know, that's always in the back of my head. But I think at the end of the day, you're proof that, again, lean into what's honest and just like write authentically about yourself or, you know, what you're interested in. That's Yeah, but I, I think it, it could be a question to the industry, especially as creators, especially in Australia where the arts is not predominantly celebrated. I think the emerging space, I said this to someone and I'm happy to say this on this podcast, it's cannibalistic, right? Like every, it's everyone for themselves. Mm. And I'm not saying this, is not, I'm not speaking for anyone else, but it's just an observation of like, we, we all want progression in our careers. Mm. Of course we do. But it is really difficult if you're navigating a space where there is support, but then suddenly there's no support. You do something and then you finish the program, you're like, see you later. And then you move on and you're like, what, what do I go? Where do I go now? What do I do? How do I create? How do I get money? How do I do this? Do I have to win awards? Do I have to do this to get recognized? What does it mean to be a creator? It is really difficult being an artist in this day and age. Yeah, sure. And then it's like, oh, social media or um, do I put my work there? Are people going to see it? How how am I going to make a living? You know, do I have to... It's a lot of circumstances you have to think about being an artist in this day and age. You know, I actually was having a conversation with a friend with a couple of friends yesterday and we were like, oh, do we have to have disposable income to be able to create the work that we want to create? And how do you make a pathway for yourself? But I think that for me, I try to kind of think of it as what is true to you? And that's the only thing you can control, right? Mm. Like what is true to you? 
what do you want to write? And you have to trust that whatever constraint you have, if you really want a career, you just have to make it work somehow. But the emerging space lacks the support to kind of support someone to get from that to, I don't know, what's the next level, like middle career? I don't know. And then establish like, What does it mean mm. to be established? Like, do you have to be like famous or what does that even look like, you know, to be a recognizable artist? And then what does it, it's, you see like there's all these tangents and questions that keep coming forth. Do you have to change your voice to be commercially viable? I've spoken to like literary agents and they said the biggest thing is your artistic voice. So it's like, if that's the case, then maybe I don't join a literary agent yet and, and just forge that path of my voice to be like, this is me, take it or leave it. I'm not going to sacrifice that. Mm. And I think there needs to be more conversations around that. So artists can feel, I don't know, settled and not, I don't know, anxious. <laughs> Anx- I don't think that's ever going to happen. Yeah, I know. But I, I hope that... I've been fortunate to get to know so many artists and there's so much talent, Mm. especially in Australia, there's so much talent, but there's a lack of of support for that to kind of propel them to move forward. And I think financial support is a huge thing and I've been very fortunate to have that, but through like opportunities and it shouldn't be that hard. I Mm. have to be a businesswoman on top of my, like, yes, I'm an artist, but I have to be a businesswoman to kind of forge a path and be like, yeah. I know that I deserve this space and having to prove myself to get there. I feel like a lot of Australian artists have to go overseas to prove themselves to mm. be, for Australia to be like, oh, they can make work. They're amazing. Well, why didn't we see that before? Mm. I mean, you're someone who's done like numerous programs for emerging writers, Artist Talent Camp, the SBS Emerging Writers Incubator, and of course, I'm not going to forget to mention the Hot Desk Fellowship. Which you did the Hot, the hot Desk as Fellowship. As well, shout out to the Wheeler Centre. Hi, um, Wheeler Centre. <laughs> <laughs> and how did those help you with, I guess, this own journey and being within the emerging writer space? So with, uh, just a disclaimer, the SBS, I got shortlisted. I didn't get to do the incubator, but the okay. shortlist process was actually very interesting because you had to do a lot of work to kind of get to the interview. I think all of that, for me as a writer, was already similar to acting training. So I, for me, it was more of like, I'm in the space, I get to know different pathways. The afters one was really interesting because I found that the afters one, the talent camp, gave me a very realistic insight into the industry, put me in a position where I said to myself, do I want to do that? Is that creatively endearing to me? Mm. That's, that's how I felt. But then the hot desk, I would honestly have to say, like you get a desk and you get money, a stipend. But something about being in that desk made me feel creative and like mm. it gave me a space to be creative. But the talent camp was you work and then you get to meet people, which I got to meet so many great collab- collaborators and some like lifelong friends. But one of the things that gave me was an experience of realistic insight. I think it, it gave me business skills mm. in a sense of, oh, is that how far I have to get to that, that point? Okay, maybe strategically I don't want to do that. I'll do something else. Yeah. The biggest question for me as I grapple with those experiences is longevity. And then that gives me tools to be strategic about it. And how much you want it means you have to find ways to be sustainable. And what does that look like? Mm. So more questions than answers. <laughs> But I think that's also a really great leverage as an artist because I think artists get scared of business. Mm, I am. I'm a producer, so I, I, I can understand that. If I know the superpower to getting money, <laughs> I can make work. Yeah. You know, building relationships, 
is just finding people you want to work with. Mm. And I think afters gave me the fact of, do I really want to work with that person? But yeah, but how are you in, in especially the hot desk, mm. what was your experience with that? It was really special to me because yeah. I think that it's, it was so hard coming out of uni to sort of continue doing screenwriting in a way that was structured and in a way where I felt like I was doing something, for lack of a better word, legitimate. Um, yeah. And so to actually have that desk and to be able to go there and just write, I think, made me sort of start treating it like a job, but not in a boring way, but in, like in a fun way where this is like, oh my God, this is what I get to do. Maybe not as a you know sustainable living, but this is something that I can dedicate two, three days a week to and um, have that be really meaningful. And then to also be paid for my work. I mean, I've been paid for like reading the criticism and stuff like that before, but I think being paid for my creative work, I think that was like the first time I'd be able to do that. And that was really meaningful to me. Mm. And that, and since then, I've made a point to go out of the house like three days a week. I'll go to the state library or I'll RMIT or somewhere and still recreate that because I realized that like when you get out of the house, going to some sort of desk. And I, and I, I bring my laptop sound, I bring my keyboard, I bring my mouse like because I have started getting like paranoid about posture and all of that. Like Ergonomic chairs required oh. at state library. <laughs> There's actually ergon- like a really great ergonomic chair at the top of RMIT and it overlooks the Royal Exhibition Building. It's magical. Oh, wow. And it's always taken unless you go there at like 5pm. That, that's my, my biggest tip for writing. Go to the like level 13 of the RMIT. Find that ergonomic plan. chair writers. Go find an ergonomic chair at 5pm at RMIT. Exactly. But I think that really started me, like hot desk started me on like the idea of really to commit to routine. Yeah. And that has been so foundational to getting this script done. So it's been important. Like reaffirming, isn't it? As yeah. A, like re- affirming yourself as a writer yeah yeah thank you so much for sharing that and I hope that I can't wait to see Overachievers in this full iteration I'm interested to see where these characters go and these teenagers talk about sex and whatever (laughs) like that's really exciting I've learned so much about your practice and you and your work and I'm excited to see your writing process grow Thank you. And thank you so much for chatting. I feel like I've also learned so much and I feel like you are so prolific and I'm just so fascinated by the way you work too. So I really appreciate just getting these insights into your head about intensity and subtlety and everything in between. So no, seriously, thank you so much. No, thank you. And yeah, we'll see each other at RMIT at 5pm for the ergonomic chair. We'll battle it out. Yeah, we'll pipe it. Yeah, we need good backs. Mm. (laughs) Crossings was produced by me, Jess Sinoni. It was co-produced and audio engineered by Sam Panifex. Our theme music is by Georgia Ferry, aka Baby G. The artwork for Crossings was designed by Tanika Page. Thank you to Henry Farnan, EWF's Marketing and Publicity Coordinator. Thank you to Vivian and Jamie for their conversation. To find out more about Vivian, Jamie, and all the artists involved in Crossings, you can go to emergingwritersfestival.org.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and join us again next week, where we'll hear a conversation between writers Peggy Frew and Mark Hewitt.